Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. To grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit that they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Let's ask God's blessing upon his word. Holy God, we ask that we would now hear from heaven, that your spirit would use the word. Oh God, give life and light, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may have seen the article this week, you may not have. I mean, there were so many good ones to see this week. Wow. The one I'm talking about may not have popped up in any of your uh, feeds or sources, but it's uh, out of Canada. 
uh, one of the larger denominations in Canada, a very fairly famous church with a, a fairly famous lady who's pastoring that church. Uh, she had a crisis of faith, and a fairly significant one, I would say, a crisis of faith as to who God is and what God has done. And through this crisis of faith, the pastor, she came out and realized that she was an atheist. It's kind of problematic, I guess, for a pastor. (laughs) You would hope at that point that she would kind of realize that there's some sort of incongruity between the two, but uh, decided not. And so she comes out to her congregation, says there is no God, comes out to her denomination, says that there is no God, and everybody's like, I dig it, fair enough. Like, wait, whoa. What? I mean, you would hope that that would be the end of it, really. I'd be like, oh, I've lost faith. I don't believe there's a God anymore that you would then be removed from the pulpit. No, I think she's preaching right now, probably. Uh, Maybe in an hour. I think she's a little bit further west. This is amazing. makes your stomach drop. But reading that article, I'm thinking, and I just have this conversation regularly in my head. Why go? I mean, if, if what she has to offer is so unsatisfying that it can't even convince her, why go? I mean, if the one who is paid to talk about the truth, if it doesn't even actually satisfy her curiosity or faith, why go? Well, of course, then you start to think, well, I wonder what kind of message she was offering. Start looking at the denomination and you're like, oh, 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 there was no message. There was no offering. You see, we're actually running into the same kind of situation here in the United States. It's not just Canada. We pick on our northern friends, but uh, because it's kind of brotherly fun, I guess. But the American church is kind of in so many ways not that far different where we live in a world in which I do have to ask with so many churches, why go? What's, what's the message that's being held out? What's the hope that you have for the future? Which is why I think, humbly, my opinion, I think that's why politics has um, some ways become so incredibly polarizing. is because we've lost our hope for a better future in our churches And we now have to cultivate a hope for a better future in our political parties. Rather than Romans 13, trusting that God will enact vengeance through the government, whichever party, we now have to manufacture vengeance through our own parties. It's not just confined there, though. We watch it and you hear all of the news stories about how the American church is dying. It's dying. It's shrinking. That's not true. The churches that have lost the message are dying. Those denominations that have lost the truth are shrinking, but the actual fact is your denominations that hold the Bible true are growing. Across the board, growing. Maybe not growing quite as rapidly as the population is, percentage-wise, but growing. Our denomination, I think, in uh, our 40-something years of history, uh, only two years has not recorded numerical growth. And one of those years was because one of our larger churches uh, purged their role for the first time in like two decades and dropped like 5,000 people off of their roles because they hadn't done it in years. 
Why? Because there's a message. There's something to be heard. There's something to be believed. There is a Savior that is offered. I believe that should the Lord allow me a long ministry, a long life, I believe that stark reality, the stark difference between those that have a message and those that don't will only become clearer in our country as we continue to watch denomination after denomination after denomination die and die and die. Likewise, it's then imperative. It's of utmost importance for us that we do not lose the message. So in my gap sermon between practical wisdom in Proverbs and God's amazing actions in Exodus, I wanted to take one shot to call us to remember the message of Jesus. So I went to the Old Testament. Don't have to have the appendix to preach from Jesus, I'm just saying. Isaiah 61 begins, and it begins in a time in Israel's history that's not good. They're not sitting around going, yeah, we're loving life right now. Isaiah's ministry is lengthy, and it marks the downfall of Israel. He begins when things are okay, and he ends when things are really not okay, where invasions happen, where destruction is followed, and later on here we get to see it's bad times all around. You would think that so much of his ministry would have been marked by, you think about, anybody watch the videos coming out of California with these wildfires? Absolutely staggering. I mean, you hear the phrase, like, it's hell on earth. One of the few times you actually look around and go, I I actually might concede that. I don't know. It just looks horrifying. Isaiah's ministry is coming out of times like that, flavored like that. It's so bad. It's so dark. It's so oppressive. And here we have chapter 61 offering a different message. It's different than what the local news would have had to offer. It's different than the local town gossip. It's different than the social club that would try to teach you how to exist nicely in a pagan land. Because that's where they were. Instead, he begins in chapter 61, verse 1, with really a staggering introduction. I mean, we read it with New Testament eyes and we kind of get the full import of it, but it's a shocking introduction. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Already you have introduced here the Spirit of God and God and the one who is anointed by God. Multiple characters given divine authority, given divine function, and it is no surprise that in Jesus' ministry... Luke, when he's in the temple beginning his ministry, he stands up and he's like, well, I'm going to read a passage and going to preach. And he reads this section of Luke 6, I mean, of of Isaiah 61. And then his sermon is, and this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And then he sits down. 
He explains it further, most likely at that point, but explaining exactly who the characters are. The Spirit of the Lord God, Holy Spirit, is upon me, the Lord Jesus, ultimately, because God the Father has anointed the Lord Jesus. Here, the Messiah is clearly prophesied, foretold, and in Luke, clearly identified as the Lord Christ. A Trinitarian plan from the very beginning. And see, this is the foundation of what the Christian message is, that we are a Trinitarian faith. That our God is, as we read in Deuteronomy, one, hero Israel, the Lord your God is one, one God. But even in Isaiah 61, as well as a multitude of other places, one God, three persons. And you think, well, I mean, I I know that's kind of important and all, but why is that like so extremely important? Well, I mean, a number of reasons. One, you have to know the God that you're going to worship. If you can't at least get that right, you have to beg the question of anything else. Who is the God of the Bible? Who is the God of Christianity? He is the one God, the triune God. But even more so because his very essence demands our humility. Do you ever think about that? Like his very essence, the the triune nature I mean, we explain it to our kids, and it's great, because children are wonderful about accepting mutually exclusive things and not entirely seeing the inconsistencies. And we're like, hey, it's one God. And they're like, I get it. And we say, well, there's Father, and He's God. I get it. And there's Son, and He's God. And like, I get it. And there's Spirit, and He's God, and I get it. But how many gods? One God. But what about Father and Jesus? Are they the same? No. How about Spirit and Jesus? Are they the same? No. And the kids get it. But then as we age, it, we start to kind of get more, and attempt to be more consistent. You have to go, man, I, it doesn't fit in my head. Correct answer. It's not designed to fit in your head because God is infinite and great and grand and glorious. And his very essence demands humility on our part. But we can't even understand his basic nature fully. But here this triune God is explaining his plan for his people. He's explaining how he will interact with those whom are his. This is the message of the gospel. This is the message of the good news written many years prior to the incarnation. We're going to look at it kind of in three lump sums. Verses 1 and 2, verses 3 and 4, verses 5 and 7, really, 5 through 7. God's work, really Christ's ministry, is in its very essence, it's a declarative ministry. The Spirit of God is upon the Lord Jesus, upon the Messiah, for what purpose? To bring good news. It's interesting, I mean, again, I... I would suggest that most of us would probably not begin Christ's ministry with his preaching and teaching sort of aspect. Most of us would say, well, I mean, he he had to go to the cross, which he did. Or he died, and, and he did, and that's good. But his ministry is one in which he's bringing good news. He's proclaiming. He's proclaiming. It is a verbal ministry. Which should ultimately be no surprise that the Word of God incarnate 
would have a ministry that is occupied with words. And look at the the nature of those words. The Spirit of God is upon him so that he is able to bring good news to the poor. And here this term poor, uh, again, oftentimes in New Testament, I mean in Old Testament, poor doesn't mean uh, as much financially poor as just poverty of spirit, general poverty. Here this term is just expansive. (laughs) He's bringing hope to the hopeless. He's bringing help to the needy. His good news, his promise is that there is help for everyone who needs help in him. It's explained further with just some of the the categories that follow. To bind up the brokenhearted. I mean, how many of us have been in that category? Maybe we're in that category right now where our days are marked with a broken heart. Those first thoughts that pass through your mind in the morning maybe aren't the happy thoughts. Maybe they aren't even the stressful thoughts of what you have to get done that day. Maybe the first thing that passes across your mind in the morning is the shadow of sorrow. Like these giant fluffy clouds that pass through these beautiful fall afternoons. But no, Jesus has come to bring good news to these people, to the ones who carry brokenness in their soul all of the time, where their heart just doesn't seem to operate correctly. It seems like their life is a factory of sorrow. He comes to proclaim liberty to the captives, that there is freedom for those that are imprisoned. And of course, this may mean physical captivity. I would suggest the vast majority, the much greater issue is not physical captivity, but spiritual, emotional, personal, the deepest, darkest scope of captivity. This is why it's so significant that when Jesus shows up, he goes everywhere, not just healing the sick, but casting out demons. There is no one that is a greater captive than a person who is possessed by a demon. To have a malevolent spirit, a malevolent force controlling them from the inside out. Now, we probably, Lord willing, don't relate to that, I hope. If you do, we need to have another conversation, somebody. There may be a greater. Here is where we feel that captivity to sin. That thing that you've confessed 9,000 times. That desire that you know is evil, but it continues to lurk in the back of your mind creeping in the corners of your awareness, not able to be fully extinguished like a burning cinder that you can't manage to get out. It just continues to smolder. His good news is that of opening prison to those who are bound. There is true freedom. I mean, notice what he's already said. These two two clauses, he's got uh, help for the needy. He's got freedom for the captive. 
Verse 2, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance to our God to comfort all who mourn. There's gladness. There's jubilation. The message of Christ is that there is rejoicing. He's proclaiming these truths. It's important that we then have this shape, our, our faith have this shape, our even ministry as a church, to think that if the, the beginning point here in Isaiah 61 of the ministry of Christ is that of declaration, are we a people that are cultivating ears that hear? Are we people that listen well, attentively? I mean, realistically, are Americans known for listening well just in general? Or are we known for kind of mapping out our own next statement while the other person is still talking? We treat their sentences simply as a comma for us to gather our own thoughts. I I needed to catch my breath. You let your gums flap for a moment. I'll organize my thoughts. And when you start, you know, stop talking, start breathing again, then I'll give you the actual answer. The problem is so often we actually interact with the Lord that way too, don't we? I mean, we don't really like to listen. Or when we do, and some of you, this might resonate a little more, you listen to defeat, right? You engage the other person's comments just to get their argument so that you can destroy it, as opposed to engage them and listen to them. We need to be people that cultivate ears to listen, to teach our children how to listen, I mean, you think about of all the great gifts and skills in life that can be learned. Think about just baby just baptized. How much better will his life be being raised up, being taught to listen to the word of God? Likewise, too, we need to be a body that speaks. Listening to God's word and proclaiming it to our neighbors, proclaiming it to each other, proclaiming it to our children, proclaiming it to ourselves. That was that Deuteronomy passage where it says, bind it on your hands, bind it on your head. It needs to be a part of our daily lives. That the word occupies space in our head and in our heart constantly. That we too would be listeners to the word of God. Well, it doesn't stop there. I mean, you might say, I mean, realistically, that's a neat beginning place. But, I mean, if it's only words, I'm really not that interested. I mean, I know lots of people that talk, but can never back it up. And I had one guy visit me in college and uh, stayed with my roommates and I was visiting Covenant. And it was fantastic because he lectured us for the better part of an hour about how good of a basketball player he was. He, he said he was you know, being recruited by Division I schools and everything. And okay, fine, whatever. And finally, my roommates, one of which was quite a good basketball player, got irritated. I was like, that's it. We're going to the gym. We're going to go play. And the guy's like, all right, I'm ready. I'm ready. And you know, he gets up there and they pass him the ball the first time and he gets the ball and goes to shoot and throws it like that both hands over his head like a soccer ball a laser that hits the rim and bounces off and he's like man it didn't go in (laughs) and my roommates are looking back and forth going like is he for real or is he just messing with us and so they proceeded to play basketball with him for the next hour and actually compete like a full basketball game and every shot was made like that Never once was it the, you know, the nice arcing shot. It was the laser beam, two-handed over the head throw. 
And you think, here's a guy that's all talk. He had told us of his greatness for hours. And you're like, well, your greatness might be that you can do a soccer throw in for 50 yards. I have no idea. But you can't play basketball. Well, maybe that's the case with Jesus. Maybe he's all talk. Maybe he has the words, but he can't back it up. Well, no, verses 3 and 4. No, actually, it's within his authority. He grants to those who mourn in Zion. He exchanges. And here we start hearing the language of exchange. He takes away things and he gives them. He takes away the ashes of mourning. Now, part of this is in Jewish culture, mourning was one, a very public and vocal thing. But it was also uh, done in such a way that they wanted their, ec- their outsides to reflect what their insides were supposed to. So they would put on really uncomfortable clothing that was designed to show how uncomfortable they were. And they would put you know, maybe ashes on their head or other parts of them so that it would show that their lives were not filled with joy and delight, but their, their lives were filled with bitterness and sorrow. They'd have public mourning, weeping and wailing. In some cases, you could actually hire professional mourners that could come over and weep and wail with you in an effort to have the outside match the inside. Here in verse 3, Jesus initiates one great exchange. To say, look, all of that outside external mourning, I'm going to take away. It's not just that I'm taking away the outside mourning, it's I'm taking away the inside. I'm going to take away sorrow and sadness. I'm going to take away grief. And instead, give you a beautiful headdress, give you uh, lovely clothing, give you proper attire. Give you the oil of gladness, which again, I mean, we're like, you know, find all of the different packaging of beauty products to get rid of oil, like how to get rid of oily hair. And this, again, oil's a really good thing. It would have been cleansing. It would have smelled good. It would have been, uh, have a medicinal property and moisturize the skin and such. Uh, instead of getting this ash all over you, you get perfumed. Instead of having sackcloth, instead of having a faint spirit, instead of having all of the garments of sorrow, Christ gives the garments of praise. And he's so successful at this exchange that now the Isaiah turns to a word picture. He's so successful in this exchange that these people that Christ is ministering to may be called mighty Oaks of righteousness. And again, why do you pick an oak? Why is it not, you know, they turn into loblolly pines of righteousness? I hate pine trees. They're ugly. They break at the slightest wind. Awful, awful trees. Bradford pears fall in the same category. Smell like rotting fish, and the second they get any ice, they split, and they're useless. An oak, on the other hand, is this mighty picture of power and grandeur and beauty and strength. These people that are recipients of Christ's great exchange are transformed from these creatures of sorrow, transformed from these creatures of captivity, transformed from these creatures of poverty into 
oaks of righteousness that God himself has planted and that God himself has planted so that he will indeed be glorified. That last little clause is so interesting, too, because it it gives us a hint as to how successful God is going to be in this. If you are his child, you will become this because his glory will be shown in it. Now, to spoil a later point, it may not be till you die. You may fight it now, but it will be accomplished. He's declared these great promises, but now he accomplishes these promises. And in verses 4 and 5, really 4, we get to see how restorative his promises are. That here, when it comes time to think about the ministry of this great Messiah, it's that there's going to be building up of ancient ruins and restoration of former devastations. And again, we hear that and we're like, and I don't even care. I mean, I live in America where I understand that bigger is better. I understand that newer is better. Why would I want a computer for five years ago when I can have a a computer from five days ago? Both are obsolete by the time I get them, but one still works. Why do we like to rebuild old things here in America? We, by and large, don't. We want new things. But for the Jew, this would have been significant because it would have pointed to how God had shown them favor in the past. It wasn't just rebuilding ancient ruins of any kind. It was rebuilding God's ancient ruins. Rebuilding the land that had been devastated by the enemies of God. Rebuilding all of the things that their enemies had destroyed. And that actually resonates more. So many of us carry with us marks of the devastations of the enemies of God. And so many of us actually carry marks we shouldn't carry. Maybe sorrows. Maybe shames. Maybe the consequences of wicked decisions from our youth. Consequences of sinful things we've done in the past. Temporal consequences we cannot get away from. So many of the days of our lives are complicated because of the devastations of sin. But the Lord Jesus is in the business of restoration. Taking away, repairing, restoring And that's a pretty spectacular offer. But he doesn't stop. He intensifies in verses 5 through 7, even intensifying and increasing to the point of cleansing from shame and all of the negative emotional consequences that may come along with it. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. Look, when it comes time to talk about how successful you are in this new arrangement, the pagan will be your servant as opposed to you having no honor, no dignity, instead of you being captives of the Assyrians, instead of you being enslaved. No, you will be victorious. In fact, actually, you'll be so victorious that when the nations look at you, they will know you are the people of the Lord. And if He needs to be found, this is where He may be found. 
Verse 6, you will eat the wealth of the nations. You will, you will receive the benefits uh, and even increased which they had taken from you. Verse 7, your shame will be taken away. The dishonor, the disrepute, the lack of dignity that has been shown, the lack of respect will be repaired to the point where God's people will indeed have everlasting joy. You think, man, that that right there is a good message. That this is what life can be like. This is the mercy, this is the grace that God shows to his people. But immediately we feel a little bit of attention, don't we? Because we experience these things in some way now, but not fully yet. But see, that's actually the part that Isaiah wasn't able to see yet. Wasn't able to discern that these things would be inaugurated. They would be begun with the first coming. But not brought to consummation until the second. Or until you die. Pick whichever one happens first. That all of these things, these great promises, these great hopes are true and real and may be experienced now, though they will not be fully realized until the life to come. And you would say, well, how do I know this? How do I know this isn't just some used car salesman that's selling me a a bill of goods or the the classic, I will gladly pay you tomorrow. I'll pay you tomorrow for a hamburger today. How is it not one of those that God is saying, look, if you just serve me, I'm sure I'll take care of you later. Maybe, maybe not. Well, it's answered. Why is it that we know these things will be true? Well, for I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. And I will faithfully restore all of the ways that my people have been taken advantage of. All of the wrong done to my children, I will restore. It's interesting that the authors of the Westminster Confession of Faith, Short and Larger Catechisms, you know, they wrote that. They were writing for their lives. It was drafted and it was given to the government in hopes that it would be valid enough and useful enough and clear enough that they would stop killing them. And this is our document that, that governs kind of our articulation uh, of the Bible. And it's interesting, when they ask the questions dealing with heaven and earth, the new heavens and new earth, what happens to believers at the resurrection, at the, at the second coming and the new life? The first, first thing they go after is they will be vindicated. That every wrong done to them will be undone. Because Jesus wins and his church does too. Because God loves justice. He hates evil and he will win. Now, very rapidly, because I'm running late because of the baptism. What do we do with that? What do we do with a message like this that Christ offers a different path? Well, verse 10 gives us a starting point. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. We first and foremost need to be a people that are busy about the business of rejoicing. 
busy about the business of rejoicing. And this is certainly not to say that there's not a category for sad Christians, but that does not need to be our default. We've been given all of the mercies of God. We have the promises that will be fulfilled because God's justice, his character depends upon it. We are to be people that praise him, that rejoice in him. Further, we are to be people that cultivate an active trust in him. And that's going to be so supremely important because these promises are not yet made full. Many of us walk daily in shame. Many of us walk daily in sorrow. Many of us walk daily in mourning. And many of us, though not in this room, many of God's children walk daily in captivity. Actual, physical, literal captivity. Does that mean that God is unfaithful to his promises? No, it just means that he's patient to his enemies. And he's chosen to destroy them later and not right now. That's incredibly important for us. Do you realize how much stability that gives a Christian? How it keeps us from being petty and backbiting. It keeps us from growing weary and doing good. It keeps us from losing the message. To know that just because these promises are not yet made full, it doesn't mean he's not keeping them. It just means he's being patient to his enemies. And then lastly, I mentioned it earlier. Should the Lord bless me with a long life and a long ministry? Maybe not. That's his business, not mine. Certainly my children, should the Lord bless them with long lives? The church in this great country is going to change dramatically. Where the gospel is going to be altered. Where this is going to be the fight of the next generation. Where are we going to commit ourselves to the great narrative of God? The great gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that he is the Messiah who has accomplished these things. And it was not simply by snapping his fingers. It wasn't by sending his thoughts and prayers to us. The Lord Jesus accomplished these promises by going to the cross. By giving his life for ours. And then offering these promises freely to his people. If they bow the knee. See, that's actually going to be our challenge. As the culture changes, as the narrative changes, will we continue to have the courage to say that the gospel is the free gift of God accomplished by Christ, given to the people of God. Now, bow the knee. May it be that this church constantly has that as our message in these years and the years to come. The triune God's great gospel for his people. Let's pray. Lord, we bless your name. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it does challenge us. Lord, we do ask that you would help us. Even as we seek to bow the knee to you, we are very bad at it. We do such a poor job. We ask that your spirit would help us even now. For Christ's sake, amen.